Well, the celebration of Good Friday and Easter comes every year, and uh, that's helpful for us so that we don't forget the significance of these events. We need to be reminded. We are forgetful people in so many areas of our lives, and even when it comes to our faith. But just like the anniversaries of other important events, uh, we can tend to forget and miss the significance of the original event. We reshape or repackage it in order to fit our needs and fit our desires. I mean, consider the 4th of July, for example. Uh, right? It was, it was uh, started uh, a celebration in which we're celebrating our freedom from Britain. And the politicians and the men of the day, uh, they, they labored hard over that decision. They labored hard over those documents that were produced. There was a wrestling that took place. And yet, our 4th of July celebrations are uh, filled with barbecues, loud music, fireworks, all which are appropriate in their own right to uh, celebrate. But I don't think that we typically grasp the significance and get to the depth of the 4th of July like those who first experienced it on that first 4th of July. And I believe the same thing can take place when we come to Good Friday and to Easter. We come and we look to celebrate and to remember. And yet we can kind of cruise right through the weekend. We can cruise right through the significant time and actually miss the point of what it's all about. Tonight, we're gathered to remember the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To remember what he did upon that cross. And we can easily miss the point of the cross if we aren't careful. If we aren't thinking appropriately, setting our minds appropriately. And so, this evening, I just want us to consider briefly what are five ways that we can miss the cross. These are not meant to be uh, prescriptive instructions to show you how to miss the cross. These are meant to be uh, warnings in such a way that uh, these are ways that we can tend to miss it. And we need to be aware of that. Because we don't want to miss the cross. We don't want to miss the point of the cross. We don't want to leave this evening and not have the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in its rightful place in our thinking and in our lives. So the first way that we can miss the cross, we, we miss the point of the cross when we miss the event of the cross. When we miss the event of the cross. You will not get the point of the cross, the meaning of the cross, if you relegate the cross to a myth. To some fairy tale that was passed down by fanboys of Jesus. Okay? You're not going to understand the true depth of the cross if you do not see it as a historical event. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the fact that the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, took place in history is absolutely foundational to our faith. It's not just a thing to encourage us, it's not just a good story to warm our hearts. It is a reliable fact. It is something in the history books. It is something that took place in time and history. Our faith rests on historical fact. Now, if you're here tonight and you 
are, are just investigating, checking out what Christianity is all about, then I invite you to first consider the reality that what we hold to and what we believe about Jesus Christ and his cross is that it was historical. It was an actual event in an actual place. The places mentioned in Scripture can be visited today. These are not made up. And while in the Scriptures we have four different gospel records, eyewitness accounts of what took place there at the cross with Jesus, uh, we also have records of extra-biblical support. In other words, uh, other writers uh, who did not write in Scripture, but they mentioned Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And I want to just mention two of those this evening. Tacitus, a great ancient historian, wrote the following. He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our pure, uh, pure curators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Galilee, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. This ancient historian notes the fact that these Christians who have spread out all over the known world at the time got their name from a man named Christ who was slaughtered under Pontius Pilate. A significant witness. He had no skin in the game. He's a secular historian. He didn't, had no reason to try to further the story of Christianity, to further the message of the cross. And yet he wrote that this took place. Another man named Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote this. He said, about this, time there lived, there, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, among us being the Jews, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold of these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And listen to this. He says, And the tribe of the Christians so called after him has still to this day not disappeared. Josephus speaking very clearly that a man named Jesus, he calls him a wise man, but he, was, he walked upon the earth and now there is this, uh, he calls it a tribe of Christians. There are followers that come after him. And what these quotes show is that there's ample historical evidence outside of the scriptures that, that speak to the truth of the scriptures that Jesus not only existed, but he also suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. This is significant and this is the bedrock of our faith. If we relegate the cross to myth or to fairy tale stories, we miss the point of the cross. So friends, I encourage you this evening, be, be reminded, be grounded in the fact that our faith rests on history. 
on an event that actually took place in AD 33. Well, the second way that we can miss the point of the cross is that if we miss our place at the cross, we'll miss the point of the cross if we misplace ourselves when it comes to the cross. As we look to the cross of Christ, we must know where we belong. We must know where our place rightfully is. And let me just briefly share the four aspects of our place at the cross. The first is that we are guilty. You and I are not innocent. In fact, if I could invite you to please open your copy of God's word to Romans. The book of Romans, a familiar passage to us, but important nonetheless. Romans chapter 3. Look how Paul expresses just how guilty we are. Verse 10, he says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Folks, this passage sits on us like a huge boulder from which we cannot squirm out from underneath. We can try to say, oh no, that doesn't apply to me. But no, we're stuck, we're pinned. I mean, just notice all the ways he tries to incorporate. And, you know, a little, someone's trying to squirm out and say, no, it's not me. He says, nuh-uh. Yeah, it's just you too. Yes, right? The herding cats. He's bringing it all in. And he, and he says, he says, none. He says, no one. He says, not one. No one understands. No one seeks all after God. All have turned aside. It's like the, this pounding of the nail upon the coffin. We can't squirm and it's just driving us deeper into our guilt. Not making us more guilty, but helping us to realize just how guilty we actually are. None of us can slip out the back door. We all stand guilty. We all are sinners. So, our place at the cross is, number one, to realize that we're guilty. Number two is to realize that we're alienated from God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when our, the first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, they were then separated and alienated from their creator. Sin stood between them. It affected their relationship with God. And mankind ever since have been alienated from God. Ephesians 2.12 says that we were without hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, this is us. At the cross, we recognize that we are alienated from God. Thirdly, we are not only alienated, but we deserve the eternal unleashing of the wrath of God upon us. We don't just deserve, deserve a slap on the wrist, a little talking to, a time out. We deserve an eternal unleashing of the wrath of God upon us. John 3.36 says that for those who don't believe, the wrath of God remains on them. Without Christ... The wrath of God sits upon us. Now, we may not feel the wrath of God necessarily in this life. 
But the moment that we step from this life to the next is the moment that we begin to experience that. The moment that it comes on us full force if we are not in Christ. Now, I don't say this to just to scare you or to attack you. I say this to warn you. That the wrath of God sits upon you if you do not know Christ. It's sitting upon you right now. And no one in the history of the world has ever been able to escape it. You're no exception. Which leads us to the fourth reality of us at the cross is that we're unable to save ourselves. There's nothing that you and I can do to change this situation. We can't make ourselves unguilty. We can't purify our hearts of our sin. We're completely unable. Now, we would like to change the situation. We'd like to think that we're clever enough, we're smart enough, we're righteous enough, we do enough good things, and thus we can change our situation and get ourselves into heaven. But, I'm sorry, but brains won't save you. God's not impressed with smarts. Being talented or gifted isn't going to save you. That doesn't impress God. Good works won't save you. That's not... The problem is not that we have a scale and our scale is just out of balance and we need to balance it back out. Therefore, I hope you see that in, in light of all of this, when it comes to the cross, our place at the cross is that we deserve to be on the cross. We deserve to be there experiencing the wrath of God. And not just for a moment, not just for a short time. We deserve to be feeling the eternal unleashing of the wrath of God upon us. Oh, folks, we are condemned in our sin. God is completely holy and righteous to pour out this wrath. And if we want to make sure that we get the point of the cross on this Good Friday, we need to see our own place at the cross. Deserving the punishment that Jesus was experiencing. Which leads us to the third way that we can miss the cross. We can miss the point of the cross when we miss the person of the cross. The person who's on the cross. And as we've said, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. He existed eternally in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. They enjoyed perfect love amongst each other. For all of eternity past, they were content. They were happy. They were rejoicing. They were overflowing with joy with each other. And yet in their plan, Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. John 1.14 says. He, he came and he took on our humanity. He condescended and became the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. A mystery that we can't unravel, but we know is true. Now, his humiliation did not stop at simply taking on a human flesh. That in and of itself, for the almighty creator God, as, as, as our brother Nick reminded us, to take on flesh and blood and be confined to the limitations of humanity and, and living in a fallen world, that was humiliating enough. But it didn't stop there. For he was rejected by his own people. All the prophets had spoken of this man, the Messiah coming to deliver us. And then he shows up on the scene and they get rid of him. 
He was the Messiah and they rejected him. He came to his family and they spat on him. He came to his friends and they mocked him. Even his close friends left him. I mean, the the picture of Christ on the cross is is a lonely picture. All he has is, is, is people mocking him from down on the ground. The very people in the leadership that he came that should have been expecting him were there delighting in his suffering. And on the cross, the entire race of man left him alone. This was the greatest sin. This was the greatest injustice for the most innocent and righteous person to be condemned as a sinner. And yet, more astounding and more terrifying was the fact that he underwent separation from his father. We read the account and we are definitely uh, struck with the physical pain that he endured. But I believe it was his, the spiritual pain, the pain his soul felt through that ordeal that, that hurt him the most. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Actually, let's start in in 26. Can remember Jesus is anticipating the fact that in a matter of hours, he is going to be crucified. He knows all of his close friends are going to leave. But he also knows that for the first time in the history of the universe, the father and son were going to have a rift in their relationship. And look at how it eats at him. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. And thus began this series of mock trials in which he was supposedly brought before the authorities, but he was only mocked. He was only scourged and eventually brought out to be crucified. Pick up in Matthew 27. Remember, Pilate is pleading with the crowd to let, let uh, Jesus go. But in verse 24, it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, and when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani. That is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In the midst of this chaos, in the midst of the scourging and the crucifixion, he is mocked. He is made fun of. 
Again, he's creator God. He's the one who stands above all. He created everything that is. And here he is being derided by his creation, by his own people. But you see the tension of his soul as he prays in Gethsemane. He's thinking of the cup that he has to bear. He's thinking of the suffering, yes. But he is burdened down with the fact that at some point, the father is going to turn his back on his son. They have never had this happen in the course of their relationship. Will Metzger, Metzger says, says this. He says, the meaning of the cross is to be found not in the physical suffering, the scorning, the forsaking by the disciples. No. In the crucifixion, the vertical, not the horizontal dimension is central. And this is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53 the great prophetic text telling us of Jesus coming and dying says that this one, which we know to be Jesus now, that he was smitten by the Father and afflicted. That the Father, it was the will of the Father to crush him, his own son. That his Father laid on him the sin, the iniquity of us all. My friends, behold the man upon the cross. The perfect, innocent son of God. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But why? Why such a horrible death? Why did God, the triune three in one, go through this? Why did they plan this and execute it? That leads us to our next point. That another way that we can miss the point of the cross is when we miss the love at the cross. We miss the love of the cross. You see, God, the triune three in one, who is rich in mercy and love, they purpose from all of eternity to redeem mankind, to make a way for mankind to be reconciled to them. Therefore, the cross. The cross was their way. The cross was plan A. It was there that the great exchange took place and made it possible for you and for I to be reconciled to God. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here we see this great exchange spelled out for us. Second Corinthians five, verse 21, the last verse of the chapter. Paul writes this for our sake, he, the father made him, the son to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Did you see the exchange there? Jesus Christ becomes sin. And you and I get the righteousness of Christ. There's a two-way swap here. The innocent one who knew no sin becomes sin. 
And those who are, as we've already talked about, deserving of God's eternal wrath, get righteousness of God. This is the amazing exchange of the gospel. You might say, hey, that's not fair. The innocent person shouldn't become sin and be punished. You're right. It's not fair. That's why it's grace. That's why it's good news. Now, why did the father crush his beloved son? Because in order for sinners to be brought into God's eternal presence, their sins needed to be punished. A right judge can't just let a serial killer go free and say, oh, be a better person. God, as a right judge, must punish and pay for the sins of all who are saved. And therefore, he placed the sin upon his son. His son, a willing sacrifice. This was not... Some sort of divine child abuse where the father forced the son to to do something. No, they were in perfect agreement to redeem mankind. And so, there is Christ upon the cross. And the father who, who loves him infinitely pours out the cup of his wrath onto his son. And keeps pouring and keeps pouring and keeps pouring of all of our sin and all of our iniquity and every, every ounce of wrath that our sins deserved down to the last drop. And Christ there on the cross took the last drop. He took it all. He was slaughtered as a sacrificial lamb. He was punished as the most heinous criminal. And he did this so that he would receive glory For his amazing love. The amazing love that we've already sung about. We're going to sing about some more. Friends, do you see God's love for you when you look at the cross? Do you see the love of God? He has written it large over all of history. The single greatest act of love was at the cross. You doubt God's love for you? Look to the cross. There's no greater guarantee. There's no greater assurance than the fact that he crushed his son for you. See that your sin is paid for. See that Jesus is your substitute. He stood in your place. Believe that. One author said... What brought Jesus to the cross was ultimately not the authorities of the Jews and the Romans, but God's love and purpose. What brought Jesus to the cross was his love. Write common verses. John three sixteen, For God loved the world in this way. What way? Well, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God displayed his love through the giving of his son. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My friends, don't miss the point of the cross. By missing the love at the cross. He has forgiven all of our atrocities. 
In the face of our hate, he has given us love. In the face of our rebellion, he has given us love. It is a love undeserved and a love unearned. And thus we are humbly grateful. And God guaranteed this love by raising his son up again to new life. An event that we're celebrating on Sunday. He didn't stay dead. And by rising to new life, he's bringing us back to God. He's bringing us to relationship with God. He's giving us new life. So my friends, we need to look freshly with a fresh perspective on the cross. And it must lead us to do something. And that leads us to our last point. The fifth way that we can miss the point of the cross is that we miss the point of the cross when we miss our response to the cross. We miss our response to the cross. You see, the cross is not a spectacle to be gazed at. The cross is not just a nice event to make us feel good. The cross is something that puts us with a decision. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He says, we must do something about the cross. And one of two things only we can do. Flee it or die upon it. Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. There's no middle way. You either will go to the cross, die upon it, repent of your sins, and follow Christ wholeheartedly. Or you will flee from the cross. You may flee from it. You may flee from it in a passive way. You relegate the cross to the very edge of your life. Has no real significance, significant value to you. It's the, oh yeah, the cross, I know that. My friends, that is not coming and dying upon the cross. That is, that is a fleeing away from it. That is pushing the cross away from you. Unfortunately, many people today in the church even have heard a message that blends Christianity with self-help therapy. They say that Christianity is here simply to make you feel better. It's simply here to make your life better. And that message says that our biggest problems are that we lack purpose in life and that we feel bad about ourselves. But unfortunately, friends, this message grossly contradicts the Bible, contradicts the gospel. The author Jerry Bridges says this. He says, Jesus did not die to give us peace and did not die just to give us peace and a purpose in life. He died to save us from the wrath of God. And so that is why we flee to the cross. We flee there to be saved from the wrath of God. Because if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, who absorbed the wrath of God, then we have his righteousness and now have the credit that we need to our account to be able to enter into his presence and to experience eternal life. So I ask you, are you secure from the wrath of God tonight? Or is it sitting over your head? The question is not, have you ever believed? The question is, do you believe right now? The question of faith is not a question about a past historical event. The question of faith is a, is a question of a present reality. It's easy to try to point back to an event. A time when I confessed. A time when I repented. And that's great if we can see the, the faithfulness of God through our lives. 
But our assurance does not rest on a decision or whatever you made in the past. The, the fact that you know that you are saved from the wrath of God tonight is that right now, tonight, you believe in the core of your being that without Christ, you would be damned to hell. Do you believe tonight? If you don't, I, I call you, flee to the cross. Do it this very moment. Don't wait until this night is over. Don't wait until I'm done. Flee to Christ now. Repent of your sins. Believe upon him. He has put himself up to displayed of the sacrifice of his love for your sins. There is no time to wait. No man knows the hour of his death. You do not know when you will pass from this life to the next. I exhort you. I plead with you. Do not wait. Go to Christ. Flee. Submit your heart to your creator. Lay down your arms. Repent of your rebellion. You see, the cross is not just a spectacle to gaze at. It's a knife that cuts deep into us and shows us our sin. The cross is, is a monumental gift of love that leaves us speechless. It's a, it's a command from our, sa- from our creator to, to bow before him. And the cross is a promise of everlasting life. We must respond. So brothers and sisters, here we are on a Good Friday. Let's not miss the point of the cross. Let's not allow the cross to to be moved to the sideline of our thinking and of our lives. You see, the cross must be central. It must be central in our thoughts, central in our lives. The reason we get up in the morning is because of the cross. The reason that we set out into our workplaces and our schools in order to proclaim Christ is because of the cross. The reason that we have hope is because of the cross. We need to cling closely to the cross. And it's at that place that we feel most small and yet most loved. Because God has displayed his love there at Calvary. So I ask you, have you been missing the point of the cross? Have you minimized the cross? Maybe you know a lot about it. Maybe you've heard these, the stories about the cross. But is it important to you now? Do you love Christ and and believe that he died for you? Because he existed and died upon a cross in the first century. It was a death that we each deserve, but a death that he took. And so our only response is to be worship and gratitude for what Christ has done on the cross for us.